0: Hello, and welcome aboard to Six String Hayride. You're listening along with Chris Wainscott and Jim O'Malley. Don't forget to stay tuned for this week's recipe from the June Carter, Johnny Cash Family Cookbook. Hello, and welcome to Six String Hayride. Today, we are going to talk about one of the great topics in classic country music, prison songs. Going to jail escaping from jail, wondering how you wound up in jail in the first place. So climb in the cart, do not pass go, do not collect $200, we're going directly to jail. The idea of prison, being in prison, being wrongfully imprisoned, escaping from prison, the hope for redemption, the hope that keeps an imprisoned soul going, through their struggles. These topics have been in storytelling in a variety of ways for centuries. In the world of classic literature, we have possibly the earliest prison story from 524 AD, a Roman political prisoner by the name of Bothius, who wrote The Consolation of Philosophy. It is his meditation on being imprisoned for his Conscience, for his political beliefs, for following what he believed was moral and right, and he wound up imprisoned for it. It's still available. I'd recommend it. Again, from 524 AD, The Consolation of Philosophy. Uh, much later, in 1862, we get one of the more widely known and popular prison stories from Victor Hugo, Les Miserables the story of a man who steals bread to help feed his family, that should not be a crime. Between that incident and his many escape attempts, he winds up doing 19 years in prison. And again, this is one of the more popular prison stories. It's out there in many different formats. Most people have heard of it. Uh, Later on in 1897, we get one of the great writers in any era, Oscar Wilde, who wrote De Profundis, his letters from prison, and again, this is 1897, his crime is being homosexual in England in the late 1800s, and that will land you in an English jail. In film, we get a ton of prison-related pictures from real serious things like Birdman of Alcatraz from 1962 arguably one of Burt Lancaster's great performances. We have The Great Escape from 1963, one of the great World War II pictures with Steve McQueen, James Coburn, Richard Attenborough, one of the great ensemble pictures. And then we get Paul Newman in Cool Hand Luke. Again, like Burt Lancaster, probably Newman's greatest performance. And then the Coen brothers do the fantastic and hilarious Oh Brother Where Art Thou, which opens with a real, probably the most common prison type story device. It's a chain gang. They're out on the road, chained up, convicts, sweating, working, suffering. Uh, Again, that's one of the most common devices in prison stories. And the film also has an incredible classic country, Americana, traditional soundtrack, well worth checking out, it's a great album. And then in music, separate from classic country, we get throughout the rock and roll era. And I guess the first one I think of is a cross between a record and a movie, and that would be 1957, Jailhouse Rock. Uh, Before Elvis went in the army, those first few movies in glorious black and white, it's great stuff. And the title track, the big production number in the movie is really cool. And the song itself with Scotty Moore and that killer guitar playing all over it. 1957, The King, Jailhouse Rock. And then over the years, we get Bob Dylan with Hurricane, which explored the story of a boxer who was falsely accused and convicted of murder. The song helped to generate attention for the story and eventually the man was cleared and released. We also have Warren Zevon with Prison Grove, The Clash with a real fantastic one, Jail Guitar Doors, Snoop Dogg, Murder Was the Case, John Prine, Christmas in Prison, Really great humorous take on the idea of spending Christmas in prison. He claims the food's really good. And then, among my favorites, uh, those classic Irish bad boys from Dublin, Thin Lizzie with Jailbreak, and the legendary, can't say enough great things about him, Sam Cooke with Chain Gang. Well, don't you know?
1: That's the
2: sound of the men working on the chain.
1: Yeah Busted Down on Bourbon Street Set up Like a bullet pin. I turned 21 In prison Doing life without parole No one could steer me right But mama tried Mama tried He's in the
3: jailhouse
1: now He's in the jailhouse now
3: I told him Once or twice To quit playing cards and shooting dice Tonight there's gonna be a jailbreak Somewhere in the town Tonight there's gonna be a jailbreak
0: So since there's no escaping these stories, songs and movies about jail and prisoners, redemption and release and escape, let's get right into it with the music and do stay tuned because later on there will be two recipes from the June Carter Johnny Cash cookbook. Don't forget folks, bribing the guards, digging tunnels, you're going to build up an appetite. Stay tuned. You're listening to Six String Hayride with Chris Wainscott and Jim O'Malley. Hello, welcome to a Six String Hayride podcast, a ride through the world of classic country music with Chris Wainscott and Jim O'Malley. Please follow us on our Facebook page, Six String Hayride, for more music, more history, more information great conversation about all those things and of course more recipes from the june carter johnny cash
4: family cookbook we're going to talk about sing me back home which is either a song about life in prison or a gospel song disguised as a song about life in prison we're going to leave that up to the listeners to decide
0: and welcome aboard the hayride to my partner chris Wainscott. chris Why don't you tell us about Merle Haggard and the masterpiece that is Sing Me Back Home.
4: So this was the title track for Merle Haggard's fifth album with the Strangers. Uh, This was the third of his 38 number one country songs. And like many of Haggard's early songs, the focus is on prison. Uh, Merle himself had spent three years in San Quentin. Now, the song is at least loosely based on Hag's relationship with a couple of inmates, one of whom, uh, Carol Chessman, is famous for becoming the first person executed for a non-lethal kidnapping. This song tells the story of an inmate being led to his execution. As he passes the cell of the narrator, who is known to play guitar and sing, he asks the warden if he can have the narrator play him a song. The warden led a prisoner down the hallway to
1: his doom and I stood up to say goodbye like all the rest and I heard him tell the warden just before he reached my cell let my
4: guitar playing friend do my request doomed prisoner then reflects that a week prior a church choir had visited the prison and he had asked them to sing a gospel song that his mother used to sing during his youth. Now, my own journey with this song began with hearing Jerry Garcia sing it on some Grateful Dead shows. It touched something pretty deep that I understood a bit better when I learned more about the origin of the song. Now, unlike El Paso, uh, which was heavily in rotation for most of their career, The Dead only covered this one 38 times, all of those times between 1971 and 1973. Also, from a technical perspective, I really think that this song highlights just how good of a guitar uh, player that Roy Nichols was. The man's a virtuoso, but here his playing is just so laid back and textural. Bonnie Owens, uh, the ex-wife of Buck, also provides some nice background vocals. This is definitely a song that should be listened to through headphones uh, or earbuds, so you can really dig into the intricate guitar work in the right channel.
1: I recall last Sunday morning, a choir from off the street came in to sing a few old gospel songs.
0: Yeah, you know, you're absolutely right about Roy Nichols and especially the listening on headphones because he's got this little finger picking figure going on underneath the whole song. And it almost sounds like a Bach kind of harpsichord bit in the way that the melody kind of keeps rotating around.
1: I recall a Sunday morning A choir from off the street Came in to sing a few old gospel
4: songs jim what do you have for us on this one
0: merle haggard had a brilliant run of outlaw and prison themed music between 1966 and 1969 with lonesome fugitive with mama tried and here with sing me back home it's also during this time that he begins to form a very deep personal friendship with johnny cash another master of the prison song. Think I Got Stripes, 25 Minutes to Go, and Dark as a Dungeon. And we know there's a lot of others. When Merle Haggard appeared on Johnny Cash's TV show, it was still a well-kept secret that Mr. Haggard had done time in prison in the 1950s and early 1960s. In Bakersfield, And in San Quentin, Merle Haggard was an audience member at one of the early Johnny Cash concerts in San Quentin Prison. When Merle Haggard appeared on the Johnny Cash TV show, Johnny told him, Look, people are going to find out at some point that you did time. You can either tell them here, with me sitting next to you on my television show, or you can take a chance on people finding out through a newspaper someday what do you think well merle haggard opened up and went public with his background and we know the rest is music history he is one of the all-time greats About, uh,
1: prison songs and that type of thing john uh, there's one thing that comes to my mind that's folsom prison the san quentin album yeah. thank well thank
2: you merle i've done several shows at folsom and San Quentin prison and I really did enjoy it, enjoyed doing it.
4: Next, we're going to talk about Lonesome Whistle, which is correctly titled, I Heard That Lonesome Whistle by Hank Williams. We'll get into why it's also sometimes just known as Lonesome Whistle a little bit into the segment. This one was co-written with Jimmy Davis, uh, whose big claim to fame was You Are My Sunshine. Now, this was Williams' 14th consecutive top 10 single, but it did only come in at number 9. There's only one Williams tune, which was You Win Again, which would chart lower uh, at number 10 during the remainder of his life. I was
1: riding number nine, heading south from Caroline. I heard that long, wow. wow some whistle blow. Got in
4: trouble, had to roam
1: left my gal and left my home
4: fred rose of the acuff rose publishing company and writer of blue eyes crying in the rain produced this session uh, the b-side was actually rose's composition crazy heart so i mentioned earlier it's called lonesome whistle the reason why is for jukeboxes the title was often was actually truncated to lonesome whistle so that it would fit on jukebox cards now from a more musical aspect, this song actually features a fiddle and steel guitar mimicking the sound of a train whistle.
1: I heard that long wah, wah, some whistle blow Just a kid acting smart I went and broke my darling's heart I guess I
4: was too young to know The steel Here was played by Don Helms, who was a member of the Drifting Cowboys, Uh, but after William's death, he actually went on to play on many classic country hits, uh, including Long Black Veil by Lefty Frizzell, which we discussed on the Murder Ballads episode, and others such as Walking After Midnight by Patsy Cline and Blue Kentucky Girl by Loretta Lynn. Uh, Both of those artists will be featured in upcoming episodes of The Hayride. Uh, Jim, why don't you tell us about your perspective on this song and which versions you prefer?
0: Yeah, Chris, I'm with you on the original, the Hank Williams, the Jimmy Davis composition. It's incredibly well done. As you mentioned, the musical arrangement really creates a mood and gives you that sense of the train. And Hank really hits on one of the most common images and symbols in country music and this idea of a moving train representing freedom, representing opportunity redemption all the things that elude the person in prison and johnny cash famously uses this later on as the basis for "Folsom prison it's a fantastic image moving train the further away it gets the more into the unknown it gets the more it makes the imprisoned man that much more isolated, and really longing for something that is always going to elude him.
2: All I do is sit and cry when that evening train goes by. I heard that long, long, long whistle blow.
0: there have been a lot of covers of this one uh, more towards the rock influence than country uh del shannon did this bobby darren did a version of this and little feet did a wonderful cover of this in the 1970s the the real only classic country covers you get of this that are well known are the george jones one
1: i went and broke my darling's heart i guess i too young to
2: know. They took me off that Georgia main. Knocked me to Bowl and Chain. I heard that long, wah, wah,
0: wah, some whistle below. And then, no surprise, my personal favorite, the Johnny Cash one. The way Johnny delivers this song with the beautiful. Guitar and bass interplay from Luther Perkins and Marshall Grant.
2: Lock me to a falling chain. I heard that long, whop, 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 some whistle toll.
0: Johnny delivers this in such a way that the character has such a sense of regret and self awareness. And even a sense of shame by the end of the song that is kind of unique in these man on the run, man gone wrong type of songs. All alone, I bear the shame. I'm a
2: number, not a name. I heard it long, 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 long some whistles blow. All I do is sit and cry. When that evening train goes by,
0: uh, he describes very clearly at the beginning I caused trouble. I had to leave my woman. I had to leave my home, hopped a train. He is on the lam. And you think, okay, great. He hopped a train. He's escaping. He's moving out of there. He eventually gets caught. He winds up in prison. But that image of the moving train just sticks through the whole story, through the whole narrative, through the whole song every time you hear that lonesome whistle it's not the whistle it's the guy in jail who's lonesome isolated yearning to be free never going to get there uh, jimmy davis hank williams 1951 a brilliant retelling by john cash with marshall grant and luther perkins and it gives johnny the basis in the symbolism and the imagery to write "Folsom prison this is a fantastic piece of work Highly recommend
1: I'll never see that gal of mine. Lord, I'm in Georgia doing time. I heard that long, 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 some whistle so
4: Okay, for this episode, we promised you two recipes from the Cash Carter Family Cookbook. So here's the first one sweet potato casserole with crusty graham crackers and marshmallows jim why don't you give us that recipe?
0: well folks it's that time of year again it's getting cold thanksgiving and the rest of the winter holidays are coming up so let's get right to some good old-fashioned comfort food this is the recipe from the june carter johnny cash family cookbook for sweet potato casserole with crusty graham crackers and marshmallows For the sweet potatoes, you need four large sweet potatoes, peeled and cut into chunks, one tablespoon of salted butter, two tablespoons raw cane sugar or white sugar, one half cup of half and half, one half teaspoon of ground cinnamon, one quarter teaspoon of ground nutmeg, a pinch of ground cloves, and a dash of salt. Now, For the topping, you will need 1 quarter cup of firmly packed brown sugar, 1 half cup of unsalted butter melted, 1 quarter cup of graham cracker crumbs, 2 tablespoons all-purpose flour, 1 quarter teaspoon of ground cinnamon, a pinch of ground nutmeg, a pinch of salt, 4 ounces of chopped pecans, and 2 and a half cups of mini marshmallows divided. Preheat your oven to 375 degrees. Butter a 9 by 13 or close enough inch casserole dish. To prepare the sweet potatoes, place them in the dish, adding a shallow layer of water to the bottom. Place the dish in the oven and bake about 30 minutes until the sweet potatoes begin to soften. Remove from the oven, drain the water from the dish, and spoon out the sweet potato pieces into a large bowl. Add the butter, the sugar, the half-and-half, the cinnamon, the nutmeg, the cloves, and the salt. Blend with an electric hand mixer until smooth. Return the mixture to the dish and place back in the oven. Bake for about four to five minutes until the mixture is steaming and heated through. To prepare the topping, combine the brown sugar, the butter, the graham cracker crumbs, the flour, cinnamon, nutmeg, salt, pecans, and half of the marshmallows in a medium saucepan. Stir well and cook over medium heat until the mixture begins to bubble and the marshmallows and sugar melt together. Spread a layer of the marshmallow mixture over the top of the sweet potatoes. Return the sweet potatoes to the oven and bake for 12 to 15 minutes. Remove the dish from the oven and add the remaining marshmallows. Return to the oven and bake until the marshmallows are browned and the crust is browned. Serve hot. Enjoy. Okay, folks, up next is Jimmy Rogers, the sing and break man from 1928 with In the Jailhouse Now.
3: I had a friend named Ramblin' Bob who used to steal, gamble, and rob. He thought he was the smartest guy in town. But I found out last Monday that Bob got locked up Sunday. They've got him in the jailhouse way downtown.
0: This song has some roots in vaudeville performances going back to around 1915. Jimmy Rogers gets his recording career started as part of the Bristol sessions, along with the Carter family in 1927. And the entire body of work, the influence, the guitar playing, the singing, the huge ripple that Jimmy Rogers music has across not just country music, but all American music. From 1927 to 1933 in six years this is what the man accomplished so for prison songs we want to focus on in the jailhouse now it's kind of a traditional there's a few people that have gotten the credit for the songwriting chris will get into that jimmy rogers gets most of the credit it's likely he took a traditional tune and just kind of threw it together in this way and what a way very much like with Long Black Veil from our last episode, this is one of those songs that is just deeply ingrained in the American songbook. It's a standard. Everyone has done this uh, Willie Nelson, Steve Earle, Leon Russell, Chet Atkins with Susie Bogus, Johnny Cash, Jerry Garcia, Webb Pierce. Gene Autry was really the first person to revive the song after Jimmy Rogers had passed away. In 1941, this was the hit single from the Back in the Saddle movie and Autry's version, very, very true to the original Jimmy Rogers version, kind of catapulted this amazing series of covers. Uh, You get, again, Webb Pierce, you get Buck Owens, and then in more recent years on the Oh Brother Where Art Thou soundtrack. Actor Tim Blake Nelson is the only one of the leads who's doing his own singing, and he really does a nice version honoring the traditional Jimmy Rogers arrangement within the jailhouse now.
1: I had a friend named rambling Bob. He used to steal, gambling rock. He thought he was the smartest guy around. Well, I found out last Monday i locked up shut. I had a friend named Campbell. He used to rob, steal, and gamble. He tried everything. It was low down. He was out tomcatting one night when he started a big fight. He's in the jailhouse now. He's in the jailhouse now. He's in the jailhouse now. He's in the house
2: now. Well, Camel fluffed his dub when he wore a tuxedo to the country club. He's in the jailhouse now.
1: He's in the jailhouse now. now. Yoga boy. He's in, the now. He's in the jailhouse 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 now. I told him once or twice to quit playing cards and shooting dives. He's in the jailhouse now.
0: Uh, this is one of those kind of flexible folk songs where the names and the places change again whiskey in the jar I think is the best example of that sort of thing but this one is a real easy rhyme scheme and it's real flexible so you have Ramblin' Bob who steals and robs and you have a man named Campbell who likes to gamble. So you kind of move the names and the places around to fit which crime will rhyme in this particular situation. Traditionally, the last verse of the song introduces a female character as either a romantic partner or a criminal partner or someone who comes to the jailhouse to get either Bob or Campbell out of jail. That person is usually Susie or Sadie. If you go out on Tuesday, it's Susie. If there's another twist in the plot and it rhymes in a different way, then you kind of go with Sadie.
1: Then I met Bill's old gal, Sadie. And she said,
0: have you seen my baby?
1: And I told her he was downtown in the camp. Well, old Sadie, she started fussing. She went down to the jailhouse and cussing i come down here to get my man. She's in the jailhouse now. She's, the jailhouse. She's in the jailhouse
0: now. What well, Jimmy Rogers accomplished with this song, uh, not so much the story, because again, that comes from older vaudeville stuff. It has some flexibility. It's really 50-50. Half the versions are Ramblin' Bob, half the versions are Campbell Who Gambles. The biggest thing that Rogers accomplished with this in the vocal is of course the yodeling part but it's really the guitar arrangement because Mm. it's basically just a skeleton he's finger picking the thumb's hitting the bass notes he's hitting some melody it's beautiful it's brilliant
3: i had a friend named rambling bob who used to steal gambling rob he thought he was the smartest guy in town
0: but it's just so bare bones that you look at these cover versions over the years and people have filled into the song without changing the song so when you listen to the jimmy rogers version you can hear where there should be some piano you can hear where there should be some electric guitar with a little bit of a swing and a bounce to it you hear a little bit of drum with the brushes, and you can hear in the course where you could really arrange it and go for this Bill Monroe type vocal harmony in the course. And that's what Webb Pierce does in nineteen fifty-five in one of the most brilliant covers of uh in the jailhouse now. <laughs>
1: Well, I had a friend named Rammel and Bob who used to steal, gamble, and rob. He thought he was the smartest guy in town. But I found out last Monday that Bob got locked up Sunday. They got him in the jailhouse way downtown. He's in the jailhouse now. He's in the
0: jailhouse now. It's just so damn flexible what Rogers gives you. That anything that anybody else adds to it doesn't really take away. And again, when you listen to Rogers play it, especially on headphones, you can hear the real subtle beauty and the brilliance of the guitar part. But your imagination kind of starts filling in where the other instruments would go. And the way Rogers plays it, it just it's just a perfect fit between his singing the story the incredibly brilliant guitar part and the way it just plays into your imagination and you're in jail and you're with Jimmy Rogers things could be a lot worse folks you could be in jail in solitary it's just a classic from 1928 Chris why don't you tell me what you got on this one
4: Yeah, Jim, let's talk a little bit about Jimmy Rogers. Uh, You referred to him by his nickname, and a lot of people have probably heard the nickname of the Singing Brakeman. It's actually based on a job that he had with the railroad. Uh, He was already a performer at this time, but he did work to support his family. This was really in the era before it was easy for performers and entertainers to, uh, you know, especially musicians, just to support their family on music alone um at in 1924 at the age of 27 he contracted tuberculosis and that actually forced him to quit his railroad career uh that did allow him to get back to his first love which was performing uh you also touched on the fact that he along with the carter family uh was one of the progenitors of country music starting with the what i call the big bang and what i believe they referred to as the big bang in the ken uh ken burns documentary uh And that was the Bristol Sessions, which took place in 1927 in Bristol, Tennessee. Now, I strongly urge any listeners of the podcast who want to learn more about this genre and its origins, go to archive.org. Search up the Bristol Sessions. They're freely available and everyone who wants to be a serious student of this music should absorb them. And I really can't overemphasize that word absorb enough. This is one of those things that if you just listen to it over and over again until you kind of know every note of these songs, it's going to help you understand a lot of what came after it. Uh, It really will give you the foundation that you want if this is something that you're interested in learning more about. Uh, Of course, for people who are more casual fans, there's no need to do all that. But anybody who really wants to, to dig in and learn, this is where you start. Now, on May 17th, 1933, Rogers began what would be his final recording sessions. Uh, At this point, he was actually so weak from tuberculosis that he had a nurse traveling with him. And then on May 26th, he actually succumbed to his condition at the age of 35. So as you mentioned, really the bulk of his recording takes place between 1927 and 1933. It's It's six short years, but it really just lays the foundation. Go read interviews or watch interviews from any of the classic country artists and watch how many of them or read how many of them call out Rogers as an influence. It, it's everyone. It's everyone from Ernest Tubb to Merle Haggard to Willie Nelson. Everybody was influenced by this man.
2: You know, you do a great job with those Jimmy Rogers songs. It's a beautiful album well, you got to... I guess Jimmy's about the daddy of them all, isn't he? Yeah, I guess he is. But you do a great job. It's kind of like hearing Jimmy again, hearing you sing those Jimmy Rogers songs.
4: You do it. Uh, and as a fun fact for the Packer fans out there, Jimmy's dad's name was Aaron Rodgers. Uh, it's not that Aaron Rodgers. He's old, but he's not that old. Um, now let's talk a little bit about the song itself. So this one was recorded on February 15th, 1928 in Camden, New Jersey, uh, presumably at the Victor Talking Machine Company studio since Camden was their corporate headquarters, uh, and that was the, the label that Rogers was recording on. Uh, Although the song was copyrighted by and listed to Jay Rogers as the songwriter, as you mentioned, there were several versions out prior to that uh, of Jimmy's, although often with different lyrics. Uh, What I was able to find uh, amongst many, many versions, uh, early versions include those of Davis and Stafford in 1915, which is the earliest known. Blind Blake in 1927, Whistler's Jug Band recorded it as Jailhouse Blues, also in 1927, and then in January of 1928, just a few weeks prior to Jimmy recording what would become the definitive version, Jim Jackson released a version. Now, Rodgers' version certainly contains lyrics which are largely different from the earlier ones, with the exception of Jackson's. Uh, In that case, Rodgers' performance contains only slight differences. Now, I'll allow listeners to draw their own conclusions here, but if Rodgers did borrow his version, I'm not certain from whom, uh, as Jackson's version, which was released on Blue Dog Records, lists the song as credited to traditional. Of course, it's also possible that Rogers was performing the song earlier and his version got back to Jackson somehow. I can't pretend to know enough about Jim Jackson to know where he was physically in relation to Jimmy Rogers at this point in time, where they may have played in common, if they ever came near enough to one another for that to happen. Uh, But it's something that's interesting to think about. Where did Jimmy Rogers get his version? Did he truly write it or did he write parts of it? Did he borrow it? What happened? So... What else do you have for us on this one, Jim?
0: I really just keep getting back to the guitar style on this. It's very much, you can hear how this is a big influence on Chet Atkins. It's that interplay between the thumb on the lower strings and the finger picking on the higher strings. There's also this amazing sense, Miles Davis would often say, it's not always what you play, it's what you don't play. And Rogers implies and suggests a lot in the arrangement by the some of the things that he's not playing. And to me, that's you can hear that in somebody like Steve Cropper, uh, the great Stax Records guitar player, who plays what's necessary. And you can almost hear where the horns or the organ would fill in around it. And certainly Keith Richards, who has almost a perfect sense of time in the most bizarre, awkward kind of way. And there's all these kind of spaces in between what he's playing, but there's still this real implied swing to it. And I think that Jimmy Rogers may have hit one of the original slippery grooves in guitar music with
3: this.
0: you just can't get over it it's it's really amazing and it's something again that you hear in rock music all the time now he he had to be doing something right
4: yeah that's a really interesting point and it's one that i had never really stopped to consider but you're right the arrangement on roger's version is so sparse and yet it turns out that in all of these cover versions which follow it it actually allows room for the the musicians of the future to fill out the the melody a little bit more well not the melody necessarily but to kind of paint a more ethereal landscape that goes along with it you're right you can hear where there should be piano where there should be drums you can hear where there should be a little electric lead and all of that fits perfectly in the rhythm that rogers had created with a very very stripped down arrangement um it's 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 a quite an interesting point like I said I never really thought about it that way before but the second you said it I could hear that in my mind I'm familiar with quite a few of the the cover versions over the years and instantly uh, I realized that yeah you're right it leaves space for the other musicians
0: yeah and there's something about the notes and the rhythm he's playing just with his thumb that sort of evolves into that luther perkins style on the early johnny cash sun record stuff and most of the cover versions of this Webb pierce steve Earle, leon russell uh, and certainly the johnny cash one all have that kind of boom chicka boom little shuffle to it and it just sounds like that luther perkins telecaster style
2: he's in the jailhouse now Yo, boy! Oh, yo! I met his old gal, Sadie. She said, "Have you seen Bill lately?"
0: And then you get to the Chet Atkins version, and I mean, geez, he just kind of goes nuts with the melody and the thumb picking and it's a one-man orchestra and you really get a much stronger sense of what rogers created on the guitar that chet could then kind of pick it up take it for a little walk in the park and just amazing stuff
3: agree we're in the jailhouse now we're in the jailhouse now i told the judge right to his face we didn't like to see this place we're in the jailhouse now Ali-ole. Ali-ole. Ali-ole.
4: So you mentioned Luther Perkins. Let's talk about a song that he played on. Let's talk about 25 Minutes to Go by Johnny Cash. Um, This is a song that, you know, like a lot of other novelty country songs of the era, this one was written by Shel Silverstein. Now, as a kid, I was familiar with his books, such as A Light in the Attic and Where the Sidewalk Ends, but it wasn't until years later that I learned he was also the author of, well, quite a number of songs that I love. Now, the most famous version of this song is from the Live at Folsom record, but Cash had recorded this for his Johnny Cash Sings the Ballads of the True West album, which actually came out three years prior. Both recordings feature the classic lineup of the Tennessee Three, uh, which was Luther Perkins, who you just mentioned momentarily uh, a few moments ago, uh, W.S. Holland and Marshall Grant. This was the lineup that was intact from 1960 when Holland joined until 1968 when Perkins tragically died from injuries sustained in a house fire. Holland was one of the early drummers in country music as drums weren't really thought of as traditional country instrumentation for a long time. And I think that's something maybe he doesn't get enough credit for. You know, really, if you go back and you listen to early country music, you just don't hear a lot of drums. Uh, and in fact, Johnny Cash famously would fold a piece of paper and tuck it between his guitar strings to mute the strings and create the drum sound that he wanted to hear uh, on a lot of his early songs. So this song, it's quite the literal interpretation of gallows humor, uh, as the protagonist will be hung in 25 minutes.
2: Well, they're building a gallows outside my cell. I've got 25 minutes to go. And the whole town's waiting just to hear me
1: yell. I got
4: 24 minutes to go. He's essentially describing the events that are taking place outside of his cell, as we start, you know, they're building the gallows outside his sale. He's got 25 minutes to go. Uh, and this goes all the way until the end of the countdown. Uh, it's really, it's similar to Silverstein's children's song, Boa Constrictor, as that it, it it features a real-time countdown of a cataclysmic event. Now, one thing I would really like here is I'd like to hear from some fans of the podcast who maybe aren't more than just casual fans of cash, I'd really like to know if people were already familiar with this song. I've, I've always wondered quite a bit how much of an impact this one has made.
2: Well, they gave me some beans for my last meal. I got 23 minutes to go. But nobody asked me how I feel. I got 22 minutes to go well I set for the governor and the whole darn bunch with 21 minutes to
0: go well 1965 is the Johnny Cash studio version like Chris said he did do it uh, as part of the live prison albums in 1968 and early 1969 uh Shel Silverstein wrote this in 1962. he's also the source of a lot of wonderful children's books and he's also the source for a boy named sue which johnny cash had a huge hit with uh from the live at san quentin album but let's back up a few years so 1965 john cash 25 minutes to go you cannot escape describing the song as gallows humor because the song is funny it's also poignant in a way um but it is a step by step minute by minute walk from the jail cell to the hanging
2: then the sheriff said boy i'm gonna watch you die got 19 minutes to go so i laughed in his face and i spit in his eye got 18 minutes to go
0: song ends with cash literally you know oh 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 he's swinging it's set up the verses are are kind of two lines you get where you're at on the clock how many minutes to go and then you get a step in the process um gave me beans for my last meal i am outside the cell i'm approaching the gallows they tested the trap the trap works fine the preacher shows up They're tying the noose, I'm asking Jesus to save my soul. And every step gets the amount of minutes left. And it builds and builds and builds. And finally, you hear the guy swinging. It's like some of the murder songs we've talked about. It has a journalistic quality to it, where it's like, this happens, this happens, this happens. And there's not a lot of uh, dressing it up this is another one where you get some kind of weird oddball covers that really work especially because of the dark quirky humor in the song lou reed does a really fun version of it the pine valley cosmonauts a local midwest phenomena they do a straight rockabilly version of it and it's got a great bounce to it great guitar in the background and overall pine valley cosmonauts if you like rockabilly, if you like old country, check these guys out. And then Pearl Jam, who is kind of known for the quirky covers that they pull out here and there, they do a nice version of it, too.
1: Well, they gave me some for my last meal with 23 minutes to go.
0: Johnny Cash, you know, again, covering Shell Silverstein. Um, they, this is actually before Boy Named Sue. But Cash, for all his somber, serious, church sort of reverent manner about him, can be a real sarcastic cut-up. If you ever saw any of his old interviews on either Carson or he'd visit David Letterman quite a lot um, during Cash's 90s revival. And it was just this real... Deadpan, sarcastic, kind of dark humor that he would just deliver in that deep voice of his with no wink, no nod, no smile. You just had to listen to it in his voice and maybe catch that little bit of twitch in his eye. And the man was secretly hilarious. And the trap and the rope, all they work just fine.
2: Got 10 more minutes to go well i'm waiting for the pardon that'll set me free with nine more minutes to go but this is for real so forget about me got eight more minutes to go
0: and with 25 minutes to go you might as well get a few jokes in here and there what do you think chris
4: yeah, I agree, and you know, there's a really interesting performative aspect of this song. It, and it's you kind of touched on it in a little bit, the way that you started describing the events that the song describes. So the song actually starts out in a very laid-back and easy vocal delivery. You know, they're building the gallows, he's got 25 minutes to go, and as the final minute approaches, The song gets more and more frantic, you know, especially in the vocal delivery. We go from them building a gallows to, you know, it's too pretty for a man to die. I'm swinging and there I go.
2: With my feet on a trap and my head in the noose, got five more minutes to go won't somebody come and cut me loose got four more minutes to go
4: you know you get this really overhyped frantic delivery of these final lines and it actually takes the listener on a journey
0: yeah it's almost like you can hear his feet dragging and his hands grabbing onto you know the preacher or the sheriff or somebody uh you can hear the the physical motion of it in his voice you're absolutely right with that because he gets more frantic more nervous more panicky and yeah you can almost see like in one of those great chuck jones looney tunes where the feet are just dug in and he doesn't want to budge
4: yeah you can you can really pick up on the emotions that cash is trying to convey the way he sings this song you know you start out thinking okay it's not really happening like i understand they're building a gallows but it, it, it it's, maybe it's for someone else I don't know and by the end you, you really are feeling for the, the character as he narrates the fact that he doesn't want to die he can't believe this is happening He's can't believe that the, the governor's not available to pardon him and just the absolute madness three that- more minutes
2: to go And it's too darn pretty for a man to want to die I got two more minutes to go I can see the buzzards, I can hear the crows One more minute to go And now
4: I'm swinging and here I go okay folks and as promised that second recipe we're going with roast leg of lamb with garlic crust and fresh mint sauce take it away Jim
0: okay fellow Hayride folks we have another recipe for you this episode because it's the season here's the June Carter Johnny Cash family recipe for roast leg of lamb with garlic crust and fresh mint sauce you're gonna love this For the lamb, you need one, about four, four and a half pound boneless leg of lamb, salt and black pepper, one half teaspoon of ground thyme, one half teaspoon of rubbed sage, four garlic cloves crushed. For the mint sauce, you're going to need a large handful of fresh mint leaves, one quarter cup of boiling water, one half teaspoon of salt, three tablespoons of white wine vinegar, and two tablespoons of sugar. To prepare the lamb, preheat your oven to 400 degrees. Cut several parallel one-quarter inch deep slits in the top of the leg of lamb, four to five inches long. Rub the meat with a generous amount of salt and black pepper. Coat the meat evenly with the thyme and the sage. Rub the crushed garlic into the meat, making sure to get plenty down into the slits. Place the meat in your roasting pan. Place the pan in the oven and roast for 10-15 to minutes until the garlic and fat on the roast begin to brown. Remember to leave the fat side up so the juices drip down over the whole leg of lamb while it's cooking. Remove the meat from the oven. Reduce the oven temperature to 350 degrees. Cover the meat loosely with foil and return to the oven. Roast for two hours. While the meat is roasting, prepare the mint sauce. Place the mint leaves in a bowl and cover them with boiling water, salt, vinegar, and sugar. Stir well, allow it to cool. When the lamb is roasted for two hours, remove the foil. Increase the oven temperature to 400 degrees and cook 10 minutes or more until the garlic and fat on the roast are a rich golden brown. Do not overcook. The Cash and Carter family prefer that the lamb to be rare to medium rare so that the middle of the roast is light pink when carved. Serve the lamb with the mint sauce. Enjoy. Well, folks, up next is Blackjack County Chain, written by Red Lane in 1967, uh, recorded by Willie Nelson, and produced by Chet Atkins. This is a violent and brutal story that ends up being understandable and even justified. Uh, The basic plot of the song, the way that Willie lays it out, and the way that red lays it out in the lyrics is there is in blackjack county a sheriff who will arrest and imprison hobos, drifters guys that you know no money nobody's gonna miss them and he basically gets them into service on a road building crew on a chain gang was
5: sitting beside the road in blackjack county not knowing that the sheriff paid a bounty for men like me who didn't have a penny to their names
0: it's a very clear heavy dark image of 35 pounds of chain being put around your leg and willie notices that the sheriff has a reputation for this amongst the other guys on the chain gang they're basically all drifters that have been kind of shanghaied into this sort of service he describes that they're building a road and every day they get whipped they only get bread and water they are enslaved it's not just prison it's slavery at this point so he locked my leg to
5: 35 pounds of blackjack county chains we had to eat was bread and water and each day we had to build that road a mile and a quarter
0: and a black snake whip would cut our backs when some poor fool complained so eventually one night willie and the other prisoners and he describes it in a real dramatic way you know we sneak in we sneak around the sheriff while he's sleeping And they basically use their chains to beat the sheriff to death. The song is very straightforward and direct about it. The sheriff is not an upstanding citizen. He's certainly not any kind of law enforcement officer who's upholding the actual law. He's got his own violent racket going on here. And justice is served. The prisoners rebel, the prisoners win and willie mentions at the end of the song that there's really no emotional scar there's a scar around his ankle from the chain and that's all that's left and he feels a sense of relief that in blackjack county at least this fate will not fall on other men who will be wrongly enslaved like this now the whip marks have all healed and i am thankful
5: that there's nothing but a scar around my ankle. But most of all, I'm glad no man will be a slave again. To a black snake whip and 35 pounds of blackjack county
0: chains It's a fantastic story. Real harsh, real dramatic, real violent realism. And for this reason, in 1967, a lot of radio stations just refused to touch it. Even with Chet Atkins' influence in the industry, radio stations just did not want to get near this. Because of the very predictable controversy, Charlie Pride, who was a big star at the time as a black musician, absolutely did not want to do this because he had very understandable concerns about how it would affect his image and his career. So 1967, Red Lane, Brilliantly told and recorded by Willie Nelson and Chet Atkins behind the board. It's vicious, it's dark, it's very real, and it's a good moral lesson. And Chris, I know you're the Willie expert here. What can you tell us about Blackjack County Chain?
4: Well, Jim, I do enjoy the use of chains as a percussion instrument in Willie's version of this song. Um, it's actually a technique that was later used by Rick Rubin on Johnny Cash's version of God's Gonna Cut You Down which came out on one of his posthumous American uh recordings. Uh I just think it's a really neat uh effect. I think it really conveys some of the emotion behind the song. Um one of the interesting things about this song to me is how you know, it's incredibly short. It, it comes in at just 2 minutes. But having said that, a lot of information and a lot of emotion is conveyed in that very short period of time um i will say that while i have a lot of respect for chet atkins as a musician i mean he's one of the most phenomenal guitar players of any genre really um i do find that as a producer he really has a tendency to not go for it and not take too many chances in the studio and I would definitely say this song kind of falls into that category. However, I, I really like, this is another song that I think people should really listen to with headphones on because Willie's vocal comes through as very sparse, um, almost like it was just Willie by himself and the little bit of instrumentation is o- almost like an afterthought, but it really works in this song. I, I do enjoy the way that you just kind of have this vocal isolation just conveying almost emotionlessly the facts of, of what happened in this tale. And like you mentioned, it, it ends with a brutal murder.
5: And then one night while the sheriff was asleep in, we all gathered round him, slowly creeping. And heaven help me to forget that night in the cold cold rain when we beat him to death with the 35 pounds of blackjack county chains
4: uh i my guess and it is just a total guess i wasn't able to find a lot of information is that the reason that the song was probably uh, not played by so many stations is due to the fact that the death here was that of uh, of a member of the of law enforcement. Um, yes, a corrupt cop, no doubt, but a cop indeed. Uh, and that was just something that wouldn't go over so well uh, at that time or really any time with country fans. I, I do find it interesting when you have situations like this where a lot of stations won't touch a song and yet somehow still it makes it up to number 21 on the charts. Uh, I do want to talk a little bit about Red Lane, uh, the int- the writer of the song. You mentioned this was written by Red, and he did write a lot of songs that listeners may be familiar with, like Till I Get It Right, which was recorded by Tammy Winnett, and My Own Kind of Hat, which was cut by Merle Haggard and included on his Serving 190 Proof album. Uh, we'll talk about that one on an upcoming episode of The Hayride, when we start going over the Rolling Stone Top 20 lists and our own Top 20 lists. But something that I found really interesting about Red as a person is, I guess he was an airplane mechanic in his younger days, so he actually purchased an old DC-8 airplane, had it cut into sections and shipped to him, and he used it to build a house that he lived in outside of Nashville. Uh, Apparently, he was able to install a bar in the cockpit and everything. Uh, I guess this was a a location that a lot of songwriters in the area would get together just to trade songs at and, you know, play stuff for one another. So I can only imagine what that must have been like. Um, Do you have any uh, concluding thoughts on this one, Jim?
0: Yeah, you know, this has been kind of rare on the Hayride so far, but I'm going to disagree with you on the Chet Atkins and and the production behind it. A lot of... uh, Attempts were made for Willie Nelson to be a solo artist and do his own records early in his career, and they kind of failed miserably. A lot of producers didn't really know what to do with Willie, and he was mostly regarded as somebody who wrote really brilliant songs for other people to sing, uh, especially Patsy Claw. And Chet Atkins was really well known through this era for that kind of lush Nashville production a lot of strings a lot of really nice sounding female backup vocals just smooth and lush and what he does with Willie here and the arrangement for Blackjack County chain is almost you can hear icky pop doing it I mean it's, it's just got this raw punkish kind of you know like Chris like you pointed out with the chains with that effect And the kind of percussive nature of it, and there's no strings, there's no fiddle, there's nothing on the soft side. It's just clang, clang, clang. We were imprisoned, we were brutally treated, we get our revenge. And it's, I would argue, a little bit of a bold step for Atkins at this point as a producer, because again, not lush, just raw. Uh, I would classify it as early accidental punk rock. And then one night while the sheriff was asleepin',
5: we all gathered round him, slowly creepin', and heaven help me to forget that night in the cold, cold rain, when we beat him to death with the 35 pounds of Blackjack County chain. Now the whip marks have all healed, and I am
0: thankful certainly Willie's attitude bears that out over his career uh it it is a brilliant piece of work and to create such an emotional impact in two minutes is an extraordinary achievement in any type of art
4: I mean I, I obviously I agree with you on the chains I do like the percussive effect of the chains but really when I'm listening to this one from the standpoint of a producer vibe where I think that Chet might have gotten more out of the take would be if he would have tried to get a little more emotion out of of Willie's voice. I mean, the song is sung in a very emotionless, you know, almost passive. I'm just describing that something that happened to another person's style. I, I really wonder what a producer like an Owen Bradley or Billy Sherrill would have gotten out of Willie at this point in his career. However, you do make a very valid point that at this particular point in history, Willie was really just regarded as a guy who, you know, he did write songs which became country standards, whether it was Nightlife, which Ray Price uh, famously kicked off, or Hello Walls, which was a huge hit for Farron Young, the stuff he did for Patsy. And if you listen to Willie's first couple of records uh for example i just listened to and then i wrote which was his first album yesterday you do hear a lot of those songs being performed by willie and it's almost like it was a vanity project producers were just sort of letting him have a go at it since he was writing all these songs that were doing so well for other people um so i I do think that there should be some credit to chet in terms of working with a guy who others just sort of seem to think of as an afterthought when it became or when it came to him being a performer. But I I really think that had he had Willie go for it more emotionally or emotionfully in the vocals, I, I really think it would have made a difference in the song. Having said that, I don't think it detracts from the song a lot. I just think the song could have been more. But I think the song as it is is still worth listening to. And it's probably one that not too many of the listeners are familiar with. Again, it does come from the pre-outlaw phase of Willie's career. So you're going to have a lot of stuff that maybe people haven't heard before that they'll be able to get into now. But I I just think that Chet could have done more in terms of using Willie's voice as an instrument.
0: Yeah. I, you know, I kind of go back and forth on that. I, I wonder to some extent if part of the delivery of the song and and you're right it's real straightforward it's almost like he's writing a letter
3: mm-hmm.
0: but I wonder if it's a situation where the narrator can't allow himself the emotion
4: it's an it's, interesting thought. it's an
0: issue of you know I'm just gonna suck this down I'm gonna bury it uh, like the Johnny Cash record walk on you know it's he, he just can't cope with it it possibility um, and you know and I think the best thing that Chet Atkins does with this as a producer is he gets out of the way I think that would be the the shortest way to put it um I wonder if him and Willie had a successful relationship together d- despite Willie's you know frustrations with other producers because with Chet Atkins that's the one big producer in this era in Nashville where Willie could relate not as producer, not as songwriter, and certainly not as singers in Chet's case, but they're both extraordinary guitar players. And I I wonder if that kind of becomes the common thing where you could just sit down and jam with a guy and you build a relationship that way. And once you get one guy on the microphone and one guy in the booth, they already have some kind of good understanding of each other musically. And maybe that helps.
4: That's certainly an interesting thought.
0: But
5: most of all, I'm glad no man will be a slave again to a black snake whip and 35 pounds of Blackjack County chain. Blackjack County chain. Blackjack County chain.
4: Next time on The Hayride, we're going to talk about what's wrong with Rolling Stone magazine. As a rock magazine, there's nothing wrong with Rolling Stone. However... As a magazine that wants to make a list of the top 20 country records of all time, there's a lot wrong. We'll get into specifics of what they got wrong, what they got right, and what they get partial credit for.
0: Thanks again for spending some time with us, folks. Please visit us on Facebook at Six String Hayride. And you can always email us at sixstringhayride at yahoo.com. And like Chris said, next episode, come back on the Hayride We're gonna take Rolling Stone out behind the barn and teach him what's what.
2: Hubert, how many times have I told you to
1: quit playing Gunslinger?
0: That's Billy the Kid, Ma. Be seeing you. And you.